You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske and Sam Gardner, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today we are talking about why spending part of your career as a pharmaceutical statistician in the non-clinical area might benefit you a lot. So stay tuned and know the music. Have you been on the homepage of the Effective Statistician lately? We have a lot of resources there for you to become better. We have quick tips, we have short videos, we have the recordings of the webinars. We have lots of free content for you to become more effective in your work. And also, I'm posting regularly on LinkedIn. So if you haven't connected yet to me, then follow me on LinkedIn. Just connect with me and you'll get much more to become better at work and potentially also have too much more fun. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the ever-growing video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode speaking about non-clinical statistics with Sam. Hi, Sam. How are you doing today? I'm doing great today. It's uh, great weather here in Indiana. I'm loving it. I'm ready for winter to be over and for spring to arrive. Absolutely. I was cutting roses on the weekend and uh, in front of my window, the cherry tree is about to start to blossom pretty soon. And when people hear this episode, it probably will almost already be summer. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there you see a little bit how we work. We work in in a way that we buffer things. And that is one of my productivity tips. It, you need to work on the things that are important, not only the things that are urgent. And if you do things in time and you plan accordingly, you have much less stress and much more fun. And um, that's one of the things that I learned about the podcast very, very early on. Have always a couple of recordings in your buffer and that makes life so much easier. There's nothing more stressing out than having a Monday evening and not your podcast episode ready for the Tuesday morning. That's, yeah, just stresses things out. Okay, so let's dive into the topic for today, which is about why you should at least consider to spending part of your career as a pharmaceutical statistician in the non-clinical area. And we have a couple of thoughts on that. Yeah, what's your first thought, Sam, on this topic? Well, the the number one reason, at least for me, is because there's an, a tremendous amount of variety in what you can do in non-clinical statistics. It, it rarely gets boring, um, particularly if the area that I work in, which is manufacturing and manufacturing development. One thing that 
people in manufacturing make consistently is problems. And there's always problems to be solved and something's always breaking, something always changes that you didn't expect. And so you've got to get in there and help people figure out, well, how do I address the impact that variation has on my ability to do this process or make this material uh, with good quality and do it in an affordable way so the organization can also be profitable. So that, that's what I'd say, number one, is the variety. Yeah, I think that is one of the things that I learned over the recent episodes, that there's so many different things that you can do. And mm -hmm. so um, you can do them pretty fast and, you know, in a very short period. It's not that, that you kind of spend years and years on doing all, you know, working on the same study or, you know, the same programs. There's lots of, lots of different experiments going on. So there's always something new that you can develop and some new methods you can learn. And I think <laughs> that broadens the methodological perspective. It also deepens the methodological perspective. And I think that is always valuable if you work in this, in this area. There's nothing more kind of boring than, you know, to do the same statistics over and over again. And when you then get a new problem where your commonly used statistics don't work out anymore, you don't have other tools. I've seen that quite a lot with people that spend a long time in their career in just one area. They get so used to the usual statistics and statistical approaches that it's really hard for them to think outside of the box. And there's nothing wrong with staying in one area and becoming a very deep expert and being very knowledgeable in one particular aspect of statistics and or pharmaceutical uh, research or other parts of pharma pharmaceuticals. I mean, that that's great. And you need people like that in an organization. You have to have people that have that depth. But if you're someone like me that craves variety and wants to do different things, non-clinical statistics is a great place to be. I just think that if you always, you know, have your hammer and your screwdriver and all your problems are solvable with that. And then at one point you see a problem that is not directly solvable with that. You, you know, you'll still try to hammer it and use the screwdriver. Also, maybe you need a fork or something like this. Yeah, a completely different thing. And um, that's why I think it's really important to, to have... A, you know, a variety of tools. Yes. Okay. Number two. Well, I think the second one would be just the ability that you would have to actually have influence on an organization. If, if you're trying to grow as a leader and one of your goals is to be influential, you know, to be able to impact the business so they can be successful and help things be better. There's a lot of opportunities in non-clinical statistics. And it, that comes from a lot of different reasons. Number one is because you tend to get your hands and your fingers involved in so many different things. As a non-clinical statistician, you actually start to build a pretty good network as, and, and, and you actually get to see oftentimes a much bigger picture of what's going on in the business because you're in that area. So you, you get that business acumen and you get the network and the, and the trust networks built up inside the organization 
primarily because of what you can do for people and do for the organization. But then you also get the exposure to see all of these different things that are going on. So that's probably the number one reason you, you'd have the opportunity to have influence. And then the other thing that organizations are begging for, they're, they're longing for are people who are systematic, logical thinkers that can approach problems from a systematic a point of view, break them down into small pieces, try to find solutions that, that are both scientifically right, but also practically right. And I think statisticians are well poised, well positioned to be able to do that kind of work too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it will be a great school to strengthen your so-called so soft skills, yeah, where you need to build a much larger network of, you know, people mm -hmm. that trust you than, let's say, if you're working in a project team where you see the same people again and again over, over a couple of years and there's not so much change. Whereas here you have a, you know, you serve a much bigger audience. You also get to, you know, have much more direct influence and you also see probably direct failure <laughs> very, very fast. Yeah, I was, I was having a, a conversation with a client this week and she had been involved as a statistician in the non-clinical area for over 20 years. And then prior to that had actually been involved as a statistician in like uh, ke industrial chemicals and specialty chemicals. So she knows a lot about process development pro and manufacturing. And she started out as an individual contributor She was just working on problems, getting problems solved. But then she started, as she grew her network, as people started to trust her more, they started to listen to her more. And then she started to say things like, you know, it'd be nice if we had a team of statisticians to work on problems, because we've got a lot more problems to solve than I can solve to, by myself. So could we, could we build a team? And slowly over time, she built a team to where now she leads a team of, you know, 30 people. So it's, it's amazing, you know, the opportunity you have not just to do scientific leadership or sort of that business influential business to person to person leadership, but you also have the potential to grow up in the ranks and the administrative roles that are administrative roles that are there. I've also seen people come out of the non-clinical statistics because of the way they've developed themselves as a leader to be able to move into other parts of the business and be a leader there as well. And, you know, in strategy and uh, people coming out of non-clinical into clinical and back, you know, I've seen that happen a fair, a fair amount of the time, both as a, as a contributor, as a technical scientific leader, but also as a, an administrative management leader in the business. Yeah. I think that's very often a good sidestep to have that exposure, and then maybe come back in, you know, another layer, yeah, so as kind of a, a promotion. And then very often these kind of sidesteps uh, help to, you know, show that you can lead also in other areas. Okay, uh, what's the third point that you have? I think one reason to do this is if you have a really strong aptitude and a really strong love for the engineering and physical sciences. You know, my background, educational background, I originally started studying physics and chemistry. And I, I love the physical sciences, particularly chemistry. And then uh, for a number of reasons, I went on the mathematics track, mainly because I got better grades in mathematics than I did in science. 
but but I went down that track for for several years and ended up getting my graduate degrees in mathematics and mathematics and statistics. But I also finished my degree in chemistry. So so I see a lot of people in this area who maybe come to statistics after working as an engineer or after working as a chemist. And, and a number of the best statisticians I know are engineers. They're they're people who worked as an engineer in part of the non clinical areas of pharmaceutical development or pharmaceutical manufacturing. And now they say, Oh, statistics is really fun. I like statistics. It's a great tool. I like the subject knowledge. So they go get their degree in statistics, or they even just self teach themselves enough statistics to be considered as a statistician. And then they can start working as a statistician in this area. And so it's really fun. I think if you like the physical sciences, it's, it's great to be in this area. Yeah, I actually studied math and physics at university <laughs> as well. And um, I loved all the experimentation side of it and understanding kind of how the, how the physics science looks like and uh, how things are going. And I had my A-levels in chemistry which was really, really awesome. I love that as well. Maybe I would have been a good. So I think maybe you need your next career path could take you down the non-clinical path if you wanted to. So, so. yeah, that's, that's pretty cool because I think also working then directly in this lab setting is very, very different to always working in the offices. Yeah. So, uh, you know, yeah, the I typical pharmaceutical statistician is in clinical, you know, never sees a patient, never sees a site, never sees a treating physician, never sees, you know, probably never even sees the pills. Yeah. Up, up to the point where they're maybe sold in the, sold on the market. Yeah. And there maybe you don't see them because, you know, it's a, it's a rare disease and, uh, you fortunately don't have it. <laughs> right. And and that's one of the, that's what's been some of the most enjoyable parts of my career in non-clinical is where I've actually got to get my hands involved with doing some of the actual work, some of the experimentation work, or I've just being able to be out on the manufacturing floor and see what's happening. In my first job, I actually worked at a site that did a lot of manufacturing. So I was issued a laboratory uniform. I had a white uniform that had my name on it and I had safety shoes and safety goggles and I could walk out into the plant just about any time I wanted to and talk to people. I could ask what was going on. That was a lot of fun just to get out there and see what, what actually happened in manufacturing while I was doing my job. Yeah, that is something that you rarely see unless you really travel to the site and see, okay, that you see how the physician interacts with the patient and things like that, how the patients actually look like, you know, what, what's really the burden for them to fill in a questionnaire, yeah? Or what's the burden for the physician to, to you know, fill in the, the ECRF and things like that? Yeah. Wouldn't it be great in the clinical area if there was some way for you to even just observe what was it like for a yeah. patient to come in yeah. and have a visit when they're part of a clinical trial, right? Because there may be things that happen there that you don't really understand what happens. I, I ran into that when I was working on the 
sales and marketing side of pharmaceuticals, trying to do market model, market uh, mix analysis and trying to say, well, what are all these interactions you're having with physicians and healthcare providers? How much impact do they have on pharmaceutical sales? And all I had was this big list of transactions, right? List of events that happened. Someone went to see a doctor and here's the, they left them some promotional material. They, they left them some sample medicines. They talked to him about these three different types of medicines and now it gets recorded in a database, but you know, to, you don't really get what that's really like unless you see it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that, that could have been a 15 second interaction. It could have been a 15 minute interaction. You don't know. So I, I think as much as we can, it's a good idea as statisticians to see how the data happens. Really. Yeah. I once spent a day with a sales rep mm -hmm. in Munich, and that was one of my most informative days in my career. I think that one day I learned so much about the industry so much about how people perceive us. You know, I was in the, you know, we visited, I think, 12 different physicians, yeah, all kind of different setups. And I still remember, you know, walking into this office and, you know, waiting there uh, together with the sales rep. And then, you know, the, uh, we had a discussion with uh, the physician and then on, on the back, there was a patient coming in and uh, the physician said, oh, I, I need to take care of this patient now. Um, uh, he's, uh, she's having a hard time. And the sales rep was asking, oh, what medication is this uh, physician on? And she said, well, can't you see a typical antipsychotics? And uh, she mentions a brand name actually, but, uh, and yeah, that that person had significant overweight. Yeah. And that's mm -hmm. one of the side effects of this class of therapy. And right. so seeing directly kind of what that actually means, yeah, how the how physicians interact with that, um, that was really, really enlightening. Yeah. I, I still have yeah. this kind of picture in my head. It makes me wonder just in the way we do statistical training teach people how to be statisticians, if there ought to be a bigger practical component of actual, actually doing and running experiments and surveys and things like that. I, I know, I think I heard this story. I hope it's not apocryphal, but Sir Ronald Fisher, right? He was a researcher at the, in, in agriculture, essentially, like he did agricultural experiments, even though he was the father of modern statistics in many ways. And when people would come to work with him to learn statistics, he would require them to do laboratory experiments and field experiments in, in agriculture. And I think that's a great way to learn statistics because you learn not just the math, but you learn what's really practical and, and how to actually apply statistics to particular problems. Yeah, and understanding why certain things happen. Yeah, there is this um, <laughs> history and now I'm, Blanking on the first name of this, that someone did a map of, I think it was tuberculosis or something related in, in London and mapped out kind of where were all these different cases. And no, it was not tuberculosis, it was another disease. And uh, you could kind of see, okay, it was because of some uh, pump, water pump that was infected. 
And then there was, but there was a building nearby directly next to the water pump where there were no deaths, actually. Yeah, Google to the rescue. I think that was John Snow who did that. Uh, John Snow, yeah. 1854, yeah. yeah. He basically mapped out where did everyone have cholera? And so it was kind of clustered yeah. in this one place where everyone went to a common well to get water. Yeah. And, and the, you know what was in this building next to the, this uh, well that where nobody was dying? A brewery. <laughs> they had their own water. Huh. And of course, they were also drinking lots of other things. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that is something that if you don't, don't go there, if you don't first see firsthand certain things, then you don't understand what, what's going on, really. I love to tell this story. So when I was working in um, manufacturing development in animal health, one of the projects we had was to develop a medicated feed. So the way medicated feeds are is you take some food item, like grain or in this case, it was uh, for fish. So it was pellets of fish food and you coat it with a a medicine. And then that's given to the animals and they take in the medicine that way. Well, we, one of the big criteria for that to be successful is that you have to make sure that the uniformity of the medicine across all of that feed is, is good. So there's not a lot of variation. And we had one place where we were making it, we had extremely high levels of variability uh, when we were making material. So we designed an experiment and myself and a colleague went up to this feed mill where they make fish feed. This is not pharmaceutical manufacturing. Let me tell you, it's not making high quality farming material. This is stinky, dirty. Um, it just, it, you know, it's, you're making fish feed. But they had this one part sectioned off where they could make medicated feeds. And we were down in there and we were running an experiment and looking at different factors that, that would potentially impact the variability of the uh, coating of that medicated feed. And we, over two days, we worked 12 hours a day, two days running these experiments collecting samples so i was there with samples gloves on and sample bags and collecting samples and labeling them and you get to really see what it takes to do a good experiment and it's not easy it's it's hard work um i think sometimes we sell statistics and statistical experimental design as oh it's just easy you know you do it and boom it's magic it's still hard work what you're trying to do is get the most value out of that hard work and that's where the statistics come in and so I really, I love that. It was a really great experiment. It had a really great outcome too. When we, from the results of it, we found some good findings from it. And, um, but yeah, I was really thankful to have that opportunity to go to this feed mill out in the middle of nowhere and um, make, do experiments there. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. There's another story of a, of a statistician that was working in clinical and then was spending some time in non-clinical and was suggesting, oh, for these rat studies, you could do some kind of adaptive design, yeah? You could then, you know, stop early and things like that. And they said, but we test them all at once. Then, you know, we would actually take longer because, you know, we would test them sequentially. Good point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think at the... For people who are in leadership roles, particularly if you control budgets and people's priorities, if you're supervising people and they ask you, can I go actually see how this happens? I would say give them a chance to do that. Make that a priority because that's going to help them grow professionally. I think it also does a lot just about how they feel about the type of work they do. And you kind of grow on the inside like, yeah, I really am doing something that's 
meaningful and important. And I see how it really does work in the real world. Yeah, yeah, very good. The last part I think is you can do quite well in this area, irrespective of you know whether you have a PhD or not. I yeah, I for sure. Of course, you know I don't have a PhD. I I, I was didn't finish my dissertation, but when I was in school, but a number of people I've worked with were graduated at the master's level and, um, and do great. I also, I actually think in many cases, someone with a bachelor's degree in statistics could work in this area. Um, particularly the way they teach statistics now at the undergraduate level. I have two daughters that are one graduated and another one is studying statistics right now. And they get a pretty good thorough overview of mathematical statistics and experimental design and statistical computing. And they could jump in and do a lot of non-clinical statistics. I mean, um, it, it makes it sound bad. Like, well, I'm not, maybe I'm not that great of a statistician because I don't really have to do hard statistics, but you know, that's, that's the reality is a lot of the problems to solve in the non-clinical area aren't deep mathematical problems. They're more about, providing logical systematic approaches to solving those problems. Yeah. And so, so I don't want it to seem like, Oh, this is like the dumb version of statistics and pharma. It's not, not that at all. There's a, there are a lot of deep problems and a lot of really, really smart, talented people at all education levels uh, in non-clinical statistics. And I think regardless of whether you've got a master's degree, a PhD, or maybe even a, a bachelor's, you can be successful in this area if you want to. Yeah, the other point in terms of the PhDs that you have or maybe not have, it all depends also where you did your PhD and what area you did it, which country, mm -hmm. country you are coming from. And those things that you actually learned in your PhD are applicable to the areas that you're working in. Yeah? Yeah. And of course, you know, you learn as a PhD a lot of other things while doing that PhD. And of course, during the same time in the industry, you also learn things. Yeah? So I still remember when, you know, I finished my PhD and was having my first interview into the industry. And one of that was at Pfizer and Sandwich, a site that's closed now. Uh, but um, I was sitting together with um, other statisticians. They were, I think at the time, eight years younger than me. Yeah. Well, that was, you know, also because I, you know, longer school system in Germany and I had, you know, spent a year in the army and things like that. And, um, mm -hmm. it, you know, PhD takes time as well. So, um, And there's, there's always a cost for it as well. So it's a, it's a kind of opportunity cost. Yeah, that, that could be an interesting podcast. It might be controversial, but, you know, what's the value of a PhD? Um, well, we have said already. And, <laughs> you, okay. Maybe you did. I, I think I may have listened to that one before. Yeah. But yeah. There's one, if you just scroll back in your podcast player, I don't know, maybe something like 100 episodes or something, you should go to... Uh, to an episode where Benjamin and myself talk about this because we went to the same university and he left after his master and or his uh, diploma uh, was called that at that time. And I left after my PhD and well, we both have a successful career and yeah. I, I knew lots of very, very good influential 
high talented statisticians that don't have a PhD. So, yeah, I think the real value of a PhD in many cases is that you demonstrate that you can work on a challenging mathematical problem yeah. and that you can see it through to the yeah. end, right? That That's really a lot of what it communicates. It communicates also just about your general aptitude, what you're able to do, but there's a lot of variation in there. You know, and I know we've had fellow students that were really, really great mathematicians and they got PhD and some were maybe not so great mathematicians, but they still got their PhD because they were able to see that project through and get it done. I, I was just working with a, a, a young guy here at near local university, not in statistics, but I was helping him with uh, a project he was working on and he's wrapping up his PhD. And I told him, here's number one thing you need to remember when you do your PhD, the number one goal is to finish. Yeah. <laughs> right. And the number two thing to remember is no one's going to read your dissertation. So, (laughs) you know, those, those are the two things you need to remember. And so that really, honestly, it puts things in perspective. If you know that probably what you're doing is not going to change the whole scientific framework of statistics, then the goal is to do a good job on doing that work you're doing getting it documented, getting it reviewed and approved. Sounds a lot like working on projects in pharmaceuticals. Yeah. You know? and, and that's what the PhD val- value it brings. You, you sort of automatically recognize, oh, this person can probably get some things yeah. done. Unless, unless so, you're called Nash, you'll probably not get a Nobel Prize for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. These were all the different reasons for spending some time of your career in this very, very interesting area. And if you're working in a big pharmaceutical organization, there's surely someone that's working in that area, maybe just to have a chat and, you know, spend some time there, or maybe, you know, have that person as a mentor or something like this. There's there's a lot of opportunity to have some insights there. I spent once, you know, one afternoon where a non-clinical statistician showed me all the plants and where the things got manufactured and how that all works. And I found it really, really, really interesting. So at least do that, maybe. Yeah, I think depending on if you're able to do this in your organization, maybe you could ask just to work on a project in the non-clinical area. There's always problems to be solved and there's generally not enough statisticians to work on all those problems. So if you found somebody that was working in that area and said, Hey, do you have a problem I could work on, on the side, you know, on on the extra and what I'm actually doing, you might just learn a little bit about what it's like there and discover if that is something you'd really like to do. Awesome. Thanks so much, Sam. Another great episode and uh, you'll hear from us soon again. All right. Great. Thanks a lot. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain, who helps with the show in the background, and thank you for listening. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com where you find the show notes, and you'll get more and more things about coming great at work. There's lots of tools, videos, tips that you can find there. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.